You're about to listen to Office Hours with me, Georgia Howe. This is a weekly companion series to PragerU's popular five-minute videos, where I explore various political and cultural topics with PragerU experts, asking questions and digging deeper to bring you perspectives that you may not hear in a traditional college classroom. To watch the video version of this series, click on the link in the description or go to dailywire.com. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm Georgia Howe with The Daily Wire. Today, we sit down with surgeon, professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins University, and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Marty McCary. His most recent book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It, is now out in paperback. His new PragerU video is titled Overmedicated America, where he examines why America is paying more and more for healthcare while still getting sicker and sicker. He also highlights the ways in which we can fix it. Let's jump right in. Dr. McCary, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Georgia. I don't know if you know this. I'm actually a registered nurse. I spent the past four years working ER. So I was, I loved your the script of your video because it feels like no one is taking that angle on healthcare. You hear a ton of people saying, oh, you know, if taxpayer healthcare would solve everything. But, you know, what you're talking about is a problem that's almost sort of pre-healthcare. It's sort of a, a cultural problem. And anyone who's ever worked in healthcare kind of knows, like, that's where the real issue is at. That's right, Georgia. And as a nurse, you would know that the real problems are starting to be solved on the ground. But unfortunately, our politicians have sort of created a, a distraction. And that is, they frame the problem as we need to figure out how to finance our broken healthcare system. We don't just need to figure out how to finance it, finance it. we need to figure out how to fix it. And we can't rely on the government to do that. We're seeing doctors and nurses now say, hey, we can treat more underlying problems that bring people to the hospital rather than just react once they come in the doors. So you said there are some of these problems are being solved on the ground. That's hopeful news to me because I, <laughs> like in the entire time I was working there, I did not get the sense that things were necessarily being solved. So what are some things you're seeing that are hopeful? You know, we're seeing doctors now say, should we be treating more diabetes with cooking classes than just throwing insulin at people? Should we be treating more people with high blood pressure by talking about stress management and um, meditation and yoga and other ways to change their lifestyle? Should we be talking about food as medicine? It's time we start taking a holistic approach rather than just throwing meds at people. And that's the same for our research systems. We've only been studying new cancer drugs. It's time we start looking at the environmental exposures that cause cancer, not just the chemo protocols that we use to treat it. So we're seeing a new movement now to talk about the entire person and the underlying issues. Preventive medicine doesn't capture it. You know, It's not about getting mammograms at the right age. It's about talking about the way we live our lives. And ultimately, the countries that have done really well with their healthcare systems are the countries that are healthy. So that actually brings me to another one of my questions. Do we have any exemplars, any countries in the world that have gone from being unhealthy, sedentary, fat with diabetes to towards being healthy? Or do we, because I know there's places like Japan where they are really healthy and they've stayed healthy, but do we have any exemplars of places that have kind of gone the way we have but turned it around? I would say parts of the United States are starting to reverse that trend. But otherwise, globally, we've only seen countries gravitated towards the more processed, added sugar, um, less healthy foods, 
in general. And that means that countries where obesity was rare, it's now common. Areas of the, of the world where diabetes in kids from being obese was previously undescribed and now it's common. We have, there's countries in the world where people routinely get bariatric surgery when they get older because of obesity. These are trends that we can address. And what we need to do is change the conversation. We should be talking about low inflammatory foods, natural foods as opposed to processed foods, and foods with low added sugar. These are conversations we've never had as we've been distracted by the low fat, high fat uh, parity, which is the wrong paradigm. I mean, just pragmatically, I know I've spent plenty of time at the bedside talking to patients about how they maybe should be changing their lifestyles to be a little healthier. I'm not entirely sure how much of it percolates. So in terms of actually getting patients to change lifestyles, do we have any strategies that work? Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize that overweight and obesity, which is the number one health problem in America. By the way, 78% of COVID hospitalizations were in people overweight and obese but we couldn't talk about it because people were afraid that it would be seen as fat shaming. And so this big driver of COVID mortality and hospitalizations was almost non-discussed during the pandemic. And you had minority and poorer populations disproportionately affected by COVID because they disproportionately had more comorbid conditions, specifically um, uh, overweight and obesity. So we're starting to now say, look, let's treat this as an addiction. Sugar, uh, specifically added sugar, that simple sugar, not the sugar that's in fruit that's bound to fiber that it gets absorbed slowly, but the sugar that hits your stomach and your insulin surges. Your pancreas has never really seen that level of sugar before in human history. In the last generation, we're pounding added sugar, and guess what? It's highly addictive. And if we start recognizing it as an addiction, without a stigma, but simply recognizing that you're not going to go cold turkey very easily. We need to set modest goals and make simple changes, like switching soda for water, changing certain things that people eat, and eating generally cooking rather than uh, uh, ordering processed food. So, I mean, I understand, you know, on a personal level that making those types of choices, are, it's pretty effective. But on a policy level, are there any specific policies that are being implemented, you know, either in the United States or abroad that have been effective with getting people to make those changes? I know New York, I think they banned soda for a period of time. I don't know how effective that was. Do you know anything that's going on? So New York limited the size of a soda that you could purchase. You could buy as much soda as you want, but they limited the container size. People in public health have tried to be, be creative about ways to encourage healthier foods. But the reality is, we're up against a massive cultural idea. These drinks with a lot of sugar in them are good, they're normal. We see advertising campaigns that no public health campaign can ever compete with. And so what you're seeing is a grassroots movement to change school lunches. And so we're starting to see now policies that are rewarding doctors and nurses for talking about the underlying things that bring people to care rather than just medicating them. It takes time, as, you, as a nurse, you know, Georgia, to get into these issues, to explain them, takes time. And when doctors are seeing patients on these 10-minute visit you know, treadmills that we're typically put into in the new culture of corporate medicine, you can't get into these issues. People may not be bad people. Maybe it's just that they have the wrong information. So is there good evidence that if you give people this information in the form of a course or even 
just a, a well-explained you know, one-time seminar that they do tend to change their habits? Or is it something that you need to like, you know, have regular sort of check-ins to keep up with them about? So the hard part about chronic disease is not telling people what to do. It's helping them do it. We've done a poor job on both. We've given wrong information as a medical community to the broader population. Uh, a generation of doctors, um, which m my father was a part of, told the public to avoid fat. Well, guess what happens when you avoid fat? You eat foods that are high in carbohydrates because that's the only way the food industry can maintain any flavor in foods. How do you have low fat or no fat Oreo cookies? Well, they're pounded with simple carbohydrates. It's the only way to maintain flavor. So we as doctors told the world to avoid fat, even though there's no data to suggest saturated fat causes heart disease. And all the food industry responded by moving to low fat, pounding food with sugar. It's now in tomato sauce and milk and so many different things that people don't realize. It's in breads. We've now got to educate people on all the places where added sugar is and start talking about how we can help people with a coach, navigator, an app, accountability partner. And that's what the new clinics are doing now in the United States. They're called concierge, they're called direct primary care, and payment models are changing now on a policy level to enable doctors to spend more time with people. So wait, tell me a little bit about these clinics. So um, the ones you were just describing, so do they uh, talk to people about diet as well as do primary care stuff? It's terrific, yeah. Chen Med, Oak Street, Iora, these are clinics that I profiled in the book, The Price We Pay. They wanna talk about how to treat your back pain with ice and physical therapy before they talk about surgery and opioids. That's the right approach. They're spending time. They're talking about food. They have healthy food in their own lobbies. They encourage people to come because they're trying to build a community. Even when you're not sick, they wanna see their patients as frequently as possible and all the visits are free because they're paid on a global basis. They're paid on a lump sum annual basis by the insurance company. So, they don't have to bill for th every little thing. Now imagine doctors that don't have to bill for every little thing and get to spend time with people. They love their jobs. So we're seeing this new generation of clinics sprout up around the country and when you see it, it's beautiful. It's exactly how medicine was designed to be. So you mentioned a little bit about the back pain and when we talk about over medication, I think a lot of people, their, their mind jumps to pain medication. Do you have any suggestion? I know we hear a lot about uh, that we need to do something about the opioid crisis, but you know, I, a lot of times we don't get past saying do something. Do you have any suggestions about what you think could work there? Well, I think we're starting to recognize now that the state of your mind's health, that is the state of your anxiety level and the state of your outlook on life, uh, whether or not somebody is depressed, whether or not they feel fulfilled in the communities they are, that drives some of the pain. So in other words, we can see people with the same MRI findings of their back. One has symptoms and the other does not. And we've never been able to explain that. It turns out that anxiety, depression plays a big part of pain. And if we can manage that, we're not only gonna spare people a lot of medicalization of ordinary life, but we're also gonna spare them the risk of, of, of dependent addiction to some of these medications. For the people who already are addicted, we have now a huge number of those. Um, I've worked with a lot of uh, opioid addicted people, and you know, I gotta say, the more I work with them, the more I feel like, you know, I feel as desperate as them trying to help them with this problem. Um, 
What do you, I mean, do you have any suggestions about systems that could work? I know there are some kind of detox facilities, but I've heard that some of those are very predatory. Do you have any policy suggestions at all in, in, for uh, opioids? Well, that's right. And people need to be careful of detox and rehab facilities. Some are phenomenal and some are, are basically predatory and they're looking just to bill you, you and your insurance company and they uh, have no problems with a high return rate or bounce back rate. That's their, you know, that's their business model. what I've work, that's their business model and it's tragic and it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace yeah. in modern medicine. Look, people need help and they need help not with uh, alternate medications to help them detox. They need a companion. They need a partner, a coach, a navigator, a friend, a community. And what we're seeing is many of the faith-based programs have a much higher success rate because they're coming alongside of people. If somebody is addicted and they're in a situation where they have the ability to quickly go back to that um, uh, addiction, they need to get out of that situation. That means get into a situation where they just can't easily go back to it, surrounding themselves with the right people. I wish there were a good way to rate rehab centers. A group called Shatterproof is trying to do just that. But the reality is that uh, so much of health and well-being boils down to great communities. I have pretty strong hesitations about socialized medicine, but one clear benefit is the ability of doctors to say no to patients. Do you think the free market model is compatible with the kind of tough love approach that some patients need? Look, there's no perfect system in all of healthcare, but we need to be able to cut the waste and get doctors off this incentive line that they're on where we get paid more for the more that we do. It may make sense in certain areas of medicine or in certain regions, but by and large, we've got to start rewarding quality, not just quantity. And so I am concerned about a system where we continue to throw good money after bad into a broken system, expecting different results. We have two options right now if we want to expand access to healthcare, and I think everybody wants that. There may be a few diabolical people out there in the world who philosophically think people should suffer just because they don't have resources. But by and large, everybody wants to increase access and availability of healthcare. We can either keep throwing good money after bad until it's completely unaffordable and the entire system breaks down and collapses. It's already showing signs of that. Or we can cut the waste. And lots of folks now are saying, let's bypass the middleman and let's have the money go directly to doctors and patients and nurses. That's what we need to do. If you look at the healthcare system today, as I describe in the, in the book, The Price We Pay, it's now the largest business in America. As of two years ago, it became the number one industry in the United States. It's that big. Everybody is making money. Everybody in healthcare, every stakeholder is making a ton of money except for one, the patient, the everyday American worker whose um, wages are being dipped into to finance health insurance and the broken healthcare system. People have a right to be upset right now. Half of federal spending goes to healthcare through its many hidden forms. People spend on average as a household $20,000 on private health insurance. So half of federal spending goes to healthcare. You spend 20,000 a year on private health insurance. You pay a part, your employer pays a part. And then you're told something's not covered. People have a right to be angry right now. So Marty, where can people find you online and where can they get your book? Great. So the new book I'm really excited about, The Price We Pay, is now available in paperback. I've got a section looking back on COVID. As you may know, I've been very active in the COVID debate nationally. Um, it's now available in paperback. And I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and all social media platforms. So 
would love to stay in touch more with your uh, viewers. All right, Marty, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Georgia. Folks, make sure to go out and pick up a copy of Dr. McCary's book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. And that's the end of today's Office Hours. Make sure to tune in next week for our conversation with a new PragerU presenter. I'm Georgia Howe. Thanks for tuning in. As a reminder, if you'd like to see the video version of this show, or if you haven't seen this week's PragerU 5-minute video, make sure to click on the link in the description below, or head over to dailywire.com. We'll see you next Monday for a new interview with another PragerU presenter. (music) 